Hi, River's Edge. Matt Deason here. Thanks for listening in. If you weren't able to join us this Sunday, we actually had an amazing Sunday. And then unfortunately, uh, the podcast didn't record. And so I'm going to recap the conversation because we think it's important enough to uh, re-record and share with you. Uh, But if you've been with us over the last few weeks or if you've been listening in, you know that we are finishing up our annual vision series in which we take three weeks to unpack our central calling as a community, which we have expressed in this way. We at River's Edge are a family of missionary disciples who live to see God's will done or his kingdom come in Spokane as it is in heaven. And if you've been with us for the last two weeks, you know that we talked about two of our central identities as Matt Karsh unpacked what it means to be the family of God, responding to God's loving faithfulness toward us by faithfully loving one another. And then last week, Tracy unpacked that complex word that comes with tons of baggage that we call missionary. And he described how we participate in the redemptive mission of God as individuals and as a church. It's not that the church has a mission, Tracy said, as some sort of extracurricular activity to be engaged in by the minority, but rather God's redemptive mission has a church, and we are all called to participate in it in our own way. The church is a vehicle that partners with God in blessing the nations. Today, we are unpacking the third and final identity piece, which is disciple. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, feel free to turn with me to Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, and we will pick up there. As Jesus embarks on his earth-shaping ministry, he brings with him 12 apprentices or 12 disciples to come along for the ride, to learn from him and follow after him. And the longer they spend with Jesus, the more clearly they begin to see his true identity and what he's up to in the world. But, just like us, they still don't totally get it. And in one famous interaction, Jesus tells them that he will actually be put to death on a Roman cross and then, on the third day, be raised again to life. And and Peter doesn't like that because the Messiah uh, was always pictured as victorious, not dead. And so he rebukes Jesus, and then Jesus begins to clarify not only the calling on his life as the Messiah and Redeemer, but also on the lives of those who follow after him. This is the response, Matthew 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Let's pray. 
Jesus, as we um, read these challenging, um, provocative words that you spoke to your first uh, apprentices, to your first disciples uh, thousands of years ago, um, God, we pray um, that you would speak to us through them and show us what it looks like to um, follow in their footsteps and ultimately to follow in yours into the life that you call us to and what you describe as life that is truly life. So open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to that reality um, right now, Jesus, we pray. Amen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And for two whole chapters of scripture, we get a glimpse of undefiled beauty, the glory of God, life and grace abundant, a place without sin or death, if we can even imagine such a place. Not a perfect place, in my opinion, but a place of shalom. By chapter 3, the whole project goes sideways. Adam and Eve are deceived and disobey God, choosing instead to be their own gods and do their own thing. And as we disconnected from God, uh, we see that humanity is plunged into darkness and that mysteriously... Creation itself is actually plunged into darkness with it because it was sort of under our care and control. We were tied together. And all of a sudden, overnight, everything changes. From this moment forward, humanity increasingly sets itself up as enemies of God. And from this point forward, we are fundamentally deceived and confused about the nature of God, our role in the universe, and what life is all about. What is our purpose in life and what were we built for? What went wrong along the way and how do we fix it? These are the questions that all of humanity is asking. And what we see in the scriptures is that God himself stepped in to set things right. Because it turns out that it wasn't enough for God to speak to us from on high. Tablets from a mountaintop were a great start, but it was God himself who would bring the plan to completion through Jesus' death on a cross, his resurrection, and the Holy Spirit. And if you're new to the story of the scriptures. Your first impression is likely to question God's methods or assume that they are a bit odd. I mean, here's God. He can do anything he wants, a being without limits. And yet, in order to save creation, he became human and, and suffered death on a, on a cross. Do you see where Peter's confusion comes from? And that's not the end of the story. And next he rose from the dead. He was exalted above all rule and authority, power and dominion. And then he sends the spirit. But of all the ways to redeem the world, at first glance, that seems odd. What a, what a strange way to save a world. And what we see 
as the story unfolds, is that in order for this project to come back online, something has to change in our very nature. The deception has to be broken, and our deepest desires have to shift. We have been outside of the garden for millennia now, being shaped and formed largely by forces other than God's love. And as a result, our deepest patterns, not all of our, of our thinking, but our deepest patterns of thinking and breathing and acting as moral agents in the universe have become corrupted. And so what we need is to be renewed from the inside out. We need new desires entirely. Our deepest desires need to change from the old order of things to the new order. And yet the old order is all around us. Studies on animal behavior and psychology have boiled the wiring of the animal kingdom into three uh, basic instincts that account for most, if not all, of their daily behavior from birth through death. And the three things that drive them, from the most basic one-celled organisms to the most complex of creatures and communities, are these three instincts. First is the pursuit of of pleasure. Second is the avoidance of pain. And the third is taking the path of least resistance. And generally speaking, this is true for amoebas and monkeys and most millennials. But in all honesty, and this has become the new human norm. Chase pleasure, avoid pain, and take the path of least resistance. And these, scientists tell us, drive us toward food and reproduction, away from danger, and toward efficiency in all that we do which in turn keeps us alive longer to reproduce more and become successful organisms. These are the basic animalistic impulses that guide most creatures most of the time, including us. And what I would argue is that these basic impulses being mapped and charted in the scientific world are actually hardwired into our nature, and I'm going to argue that these instincts are actually the foundation for what the scriptures would call the flesh. And if you're new to church or whatever, that may sound like strange or religious language, but these instincts have become standard operating procedures in a post-Eden world. They permeate the entire human experience. But the problem with this mentality often becomes, often is that it becomes the only operating procedure. And when that happens, it actually becomes antithetical to the kingdom of God. You see, God is out to set the creation project right again and to redeem it or restore it. And, and central to the purposes of God is the renewal of the human heart from the inside out, giving us new wiring and new desires. 
And so rather than giving an overwhelming display of glory and power by wiping the slate of creation clean, God has chosen instead to renew everything in creation, starting with the human heart. And what immediately ensues inside each human heart is a clash of kingdoms. On the one hand, you have the kingdom of the world, which operates largely off pleasure, pain, and the path of least resistance, which, uh, though seeming innocent enough, is actually the source of a great wealth of evil in the world. But this mentality is sort of of how we're wired and what we're comfortable with. And so for the most part, we just become totally accustomed to it and, and accustomed to operating in this way. It is the water that we swim in from the day you were born and right on through. And then Jesus comes along. And he actually moves us from darkness into the light. He shifts our deepest desires uh, from those of darkness into light. And then he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Come join me in my redemptive mission in the world. Follow me. Participate. And because our default is to operate in the flesh and in the kingdom of the world, this flies in the face of everything we are accustomed to. Jesus enters our narcissistic world as a confronting presence, issuing an invitation which threatens the very foundation of our existence. He says, hey, you have been pursuing hedonistic pleasure and avoiding legitimate pain. I say, pick up your cross and follow me. And this is actually what opens up the door for the fullness of inner transformation to take place. And as it does, the human heart comes back on track. And Jesus says, hey, my disciples are going to be marked by this. In first century Israel, there was a clear cultural understanding of what a disciple was. There were disciples everywhere, following all sorts of rabbis and leaders, and the expectation was clear. The goal of your discipleship was threefold. First, it was to follow your rabbi. Second, it was to become more like them in the process. And third, the ultimate goal was to become so much like your rabbi that you could be released into the world to carry on their work. So follow your rabbi, become more like them, and ultimately carry on their work in the world. Today, we go to college for a couple years to gain knowledge. Back then, you followed your rabbi for a couple years, not for a few hours a day as you would be in class, but all the time, every day. And through it, you were not just to grow in knowledge, you were to be transformed in the process. And so Jesus turns to his disciples, who know they are his disciples, 
But now Jesus introduces this concept at the heart of discipleship that would have been shocking and difficult for them to grasp. I mean, surely to follow someone so wonderful, so loving, so comforting, so full of the Spirit, surely to follow Him would be an uplifting experience. And and it will be, but ultimately. But in order for full transformation to take place, we actually have to give God access to all of us and allow Him to confront the most basic instincts and wirings of the fallen human nature. And I think most of us feel the tension in this call. We know the moment that Jesus says these words that he's calling us into something unique and distinct because picking up our cross actually has something to say about your sexuality. Because the world says, seek pleasure, avoid hindrance, and take the path of least resistance. And what results is a sex culture built on pleasure without commitment and even taking advantage of others if that's the easiest path for you. And we know that narrative because the culture preaches it to us every day. And we've tasted the fruit of lust and promiscuity and objectification and brokenheartedness and hearts that are numbed by our experiences in this realm. Seek pleasure, avoid commitment, and take the path of least resistance. Now, where did we get that idea from? And I, and I think we need to call this out for what it is. Brothers and sisters, this is the emerging definition of American freedom. And, and we think we invented this stuff. The, the freedom of the American sexual ethic is freedom to follow your instincts into slavery and death. Because that's where the path of least resistance leads. On the other hand, the way of Jesus is the path of highest resistance. It is the one characterized by honor and restraint and hard-fought purity on the road leading up to total commitment for life. Does that sound easy or difficult? Well, I'm going to say difficult. No, no, no. The call of Jesus on your sexuality is the one of greatest resistance leading to the greatest beauty. And there will be moments along the way when you are keenly aware of the cross you are carrying. When it comes to profit, the path of least resistance is to lie, cheat, clear-cut, and consume the most resources in the shortest amount of time so that you can watch your stock options soar and retire at age 35. That is the path of least resistance. But does that honor God, honor creation, and honor future generations? Well, no. And in fact, it is the source of all sorts of greed and consumerism and honestly misery in this world. 
The way of Jesus is the one in which we care about the planet and we care about our neighbors no matter how distant to the point that it actually matters to us whether or not our clothes were made by slaves. It's the one where we choose less stuff over cheap stuff, and we recognize that God has a call on our lives to be generous with our money along the way. The path of least resistance is to cut corners, buy cheap, pass the cost on to others, and keep all you can for yourself. Most pleasure, least pain, easiest path. Do you see how this mentality seeps into everything that we do? And do you see how the call to pick up your cross actually has something to say about sex and money and power and comfort? It actually has something to say about your flesh. I mean, this is, this is shocking to us. And this is doubly shocking in America because we've become accustomed to a certain flavor of Christianity in which belief in Jesus is a nice little pocket of our lives, one compartmentalized little piece that doesn't really affect the rest of us. And that's the way that we like it. We prefer to have Jesus as creamer in our coffee, as seasoning sprinkled over our food, as one neatly divided pocket of our lives that has little to say about all of life. And so we've attempted to repackage discipleship to Jesus in a consumeristic bundle that allows people to keep their orientation around these central instincts of seeking pleasure, avoiding pain, and finding the path of least resistance. How many of us were told, follow Jesus and your life will be awesome. All of your problems will go away. It's the best way to avoid pain. It's the quickest way to a pleasurable life. Okay, that, that works in getting people to commit to Jesus, but it sets people up for profound disappointment because Jesus never actually said that. In fact, his call was wrapped up in a bunch of language that we almost find embarrassing in modern day America. Timothy Tennant, in his book On the Shifting Center of World Christianity, noted that we have just crossed a new threshold in history in which the majority of Christians now exist outside of the Western world and what used to be considered the mission field. And while gospel movements are exploding in what we would call the majority world out there, at the same time, it is entering a state of precipitous decline in America and Western Europe. And these new centers of Christianity in South America and Africa and China are bursting at the seams with Christians who have a high view of the authority of Scripture and a high view of what we would call the supernatural, or God acting in real time through the Holy Spirit. To describe them in terms of labels, 
we would have to say that they are more orthodox than the average American church, and yet simultaneously more Pentecostal than the average American church. And as a result of having a high view of Scripture and the Holy Spirit, they are in this place not of perfection, but of sustained and incredible growth. And as part of their high view of Scripture, Many of them have made no apologies for the call of Jesus and all that it entails. This call is to set aside your life, pick up your cross, and follow King Jesus at all costs. And in many cases, it costs them everything. In contrast, in the postmodern West, we live in a place of privilege and options. And as a result, we've almost unconsciously begun to twist the call of Jesus in order to make it more palatable for the culture. Tenet uh, says it this way. He says, evangelicals, among which he would count himself. He's talking about his theological tribe, okay? Evangelicals have been turning the gospel into a market commodity, all in the name of evangelism. Far too often, the gospel is handled as something to be packaged, popularized, and marketed to various identifiable niches. Difficult topics, including the call to pick up your cross and follow Jesus, are seldom mentioned lest it lead to a decline in market share. Evangelicals would rather be, res be a respected acolyte in the temple of the global market God than a prophetic voice in a culture that revels in using religious, even Christian, language to baptize the autonomous self. Brothers and sisters, the scriptures do not teach us to baptize the autonomous self in affirmation and acceptance, but rather to take your old self and put it to death. Our impulse is to operate in the flesh, taking the path of least resistance, worshiping pleasure, and fearing pain, and then, as a means of maintaining our lifestyle, we would rather invent a new God who is willing to sign off on the path that we've already chosen. We would rather focus on the fact that we are forgiven as an excuse for continuing to live as we desire. And then Jesus comes in, with an invitation to enter an eternal kingdom that often confronts our selfishness like a slap in the face. And as we sense the invitation, I think that humanity has three primary responses to it, at least in America. The first response is that at the root level, we reject God because we view him as a threat to our basic instincts and an assault on our flesh. He is a threat to life as we know it. 
And so by rejecting God, we seek to defend what we would call the autonomous self. We defend what we perceive as freedom rooted in our three primary instincts. We defend our right to seek pleasure for ourselves with as little restraint as possible. We defend what the Bible would call the flesh. In part, because we can't even tell the difference between our flesh and ourselves, and a threat to part of us becomes a threat to all of us. And so in self-defense, we reject him. Our second response is that some people do in fact invite God in, but we do it on our terms. We recognize that God, though potentially distant or even uninterested, uh, is in fact real. And so we seek his stamp of approval on on the lives we already lead. In essence, we attempt to smuggle the flesh into life with God, claiming forgiveness over our selfishness without ever doing much about it. And notice that the masses in our country are choosing option one, and increasingly so. And so our response to the masses choosing the flesh over God is actually to soften the call of Jesus to make it more palatable for them. So we say God uh, loves you just the way that you are. And and that's true. But then we go on to say, he won't ask you to change. He just wants you to pray this prayer and and you'll have hope in, in heaven. Just believe on any level and then go back to business as usual. There's no, com- there's no confrontation. There's no crosses. Uh, there's no call to self-sacrifice. And, and, and that's the way we, we've offered uh, the invitation. And as a result of softening the call, you end up with all of these people in scenario two who have smuggled the flesh into the spiritual life, some without even knowing it because they never heard the full call to begin with. And so what you end up with is a whole class of people who self-identify as believers but think it perfectly acceptable not to follow. Because that all sounds really extreme. And, and, and I'm not like super religious or anything. I, I'm not an extremist or, or a nut. Uh, but, but I believe, and, and that's enough. And the drawback is that oftentimes they don't look that much like Jesus and they aren't really moving that direction. Why? Well, in the words of Tenet, they have baptized the autonomous self. They have justified the flesh rather than put it to death. And so they limp on. But Jesus offers us another way forward, a third option, if you will, in which our flesh is confronted and called out and even brought forward for judgment and execution. And all of it is in the context of radical grace and the renewing of our deepest desires. Here's one way that the scriptures talk about this. It says, since then, you have been raised with Christ, 
Set your heart on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And then here's here's the conclusion. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, and on it goes. You have a new heart. You belong to a new kingdom. And your deepest desires have changed. And now, Jesus says, pick up your cross and come follow me. Come follow me completely with everything you have and everything you are. Does that call sound easy or difficult? I'm going to say that's difficult. In fact, I can't really think of a more difficult call. And yet the intensity of the call forces us to decide where our allegiance lies. Because if we'd rather have the flesh than regeneration, we'll end up believing in Jesus and then throwing up all sorts of excuses like a smokescreen as to why we shouldn't actually follow after him. And we can become experts in doing so. Matthew 8, verse 18. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Which is Hebrew for, I'm homeless. There's there's no lake house waiting for me on the other side. This call is not easy. It's not comfortable. And, And as the crowd's overhearing this, another disciple said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father which is Hebrew for, I I think I just remembered I have to take two weeks off. I'd love to come, Jesus, but the lawn needs mowing and I've got these new model airplanes to build and I'm just not really sure my family would feel super comfortable about me following you, so ah, sorry, but... But Jesus told him, verse 22, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. What is this? What's going on here? Jesus is calling them to follow and telling them to count the cost. These people believe, but don't follow. Their belief has not risen to the level of discipleship, which responds in obedience. And at some point, after enough compromises, and consistently choosing the flesh over the spirit, the label disciple starts to make less and less sense. It doesn't really resonate anymore. It doesn't stick. And we slowly come to a place of abstract belief with no corresponding action. 
And in his response, Jesus simultaneously sets aside their excuses. Hey, don't hide behind those. And he points to new life. He says, hey, let the dead bury their own dead. As for you, you are called to be alive. And if you want life, then come follow me. And as the dust settles and we come to the end uh, of the teaching, we're really left with two questions. Question number one, is your primary allegiance to Jesus? And question number two, are you willing to die? First, is your primary allegiance to Jesus or is it to sex? or family, or is it to money, or power, or comfort, or the lake house, or your girlfriend, or whatever? Who gets the final word? Who calls the shots? When making more money conflicts with the way of Jesus, what do you do? When the call to power, when the lure of sex, when the pressure of family openly conflicts with the call of Jesus, which way do you turn? Is Jesus the primary focus in your life? That's first. And second, are you willing to die? Are you willing to die to yourself? Are you willing to, to put the flesh to death in order to discover something else entirely and maybe, just maybe, move past the animalistic instincts of self-preservation that you inherited at birth. The flesh, the scriptures say, sets its desires against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please or you, you can't just do whatever you want. This is the tension that we live in every day. But the call of Jesus is to live for him in a dying daily type of way. And in fact, Luke's gospel says, pick up your cross daily and follow me, crucifying the flesh, putting it to death so that a new and violent act of life can take place. You partner with Jesus in uprooting the flesh and clearing the ground. And as you do, you are clearing space for regeneration and restoration and renewal and growth and becoming the type of person that Jesus has set out to create. If we answer yes to both of those questions, then a whole new world becomes available to us. The dam cracks and splinters and new life comes flooding in. The kingdom of heaven is at your fingertips, pulsing through your veins. If you answer yes to both of those questions, then you are a follower of Jesus. You are a disciple. And so you pick up your cross, but as you do, you find that the burden is lighter than anticipated. 
that in fact your deepest desires have been reoriented around the kingdom of God and that Jesus himself is right there with you sharing the weight. You find that his burden is actually light and that there is new life to sustain us and the spirit of God to empower us. You find that your new self has already been created in Christ as righteous and holy and redeemed. That your deepest desire is actually Jesus and the kingdom. The problem is that those instincts are right there, whispering in your ear. And so Jesus calls, up to, calls us to pick up our cross and we walk the other way. Jesus calls us to follow him and we say, no, I, I'd actually rather just believe. And, and, and as we do, we're stuck. It's only when we step forward into the call that we suddenly find ourselves operating more fully in the inbreaking kingdom of heaven, fully engaged in the family of God, fully engaged in the mission of God, and fully engaged in discipleship. And our deepest desire is that in the coming year, we would be a community of disciples, not just believers, people who die to themselves daily as a means of, of entering and experiencing new life in all of its counterintuitive beauty. For whoever wants to save their life, Jesus says, will lose it. And whoever loses their life for him will find something else entirely, life that is truly life. And our desire is that we would be a community that sees who we are in Jesus and then responds to his call on our lives in all of its intensity and all of its glory. Let's pray. Jesus, as we ponder the words that you've spoken, as we ponder the life that you call us to and, and the grace that paves the road of discipleship, God, may we also understand what's at stake. And as we feel the weight of your words, Jesus, as, as some of us feel um, conviction or maybe even specific areas of our lives, where we've openly let the flesh rule and reign instead of the Holy Spirit. Um, God, would we also sense um, your love and your grace and your empowering presence at work in our life, calling us forward, calling us deeper into your kingdom, deeper into discipleship, uh, and, and deeper into the life that lies ahead. And Jesus, may we be the type of people who count the cost, who know what's at stake, and who say yes to you. In your name, amen.